Morning, glory and evening, Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt as we coast into the weekend on this Good Friday. It is time for the latest in our Hillsdale Dialogues with the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn. Uh, after the break, we're going to be returning to the uh, history of the Peloponnesian War. But Dr. Arn, let me say happy Easter to you before we begin. Happy Easter, Hugh. I want to begin by asking you about the consequences in your mind of the arguments this week before the Supreme Court. I've said on this show that Marriage is the weight-bearing wall of the West. It's possible to move a weight-bearing wall. It's possible to alter it and not have the whole thing fall down, but it's dangerous. It looks like we're about to do that. What do you think? Well, I don't know. I'm hoping that they will uh, agree not to agree and not do anything about it, right? Isn't that one of the interpretations about oral arguments, what might happen? Yes. And I don't hope for more than that because I fear more than I hope. Um, And, you know, the, the... the reason it's so serious is if marriage is a thing and it is a natural thing, then it doesn't matter what the justices say about it. It will still be that thing. And if the law fights against that thing, then we're going to suffer. And we are suffering now from the decline of the family in very serious ways. And the loss of its meaning and the legal and even constitutional proclamation that it means something different than what it means is disastrous. There was also, Dr. Arn, a debate within the debate, and I want to play for you three excerpts of the show I did yesterday where I played for the very distinguished constitutional scholar, Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the University of California Irvine Law School, who's a man of the left, but a very brilliant man of the left. Your old uh, debate partner. Yes, and uh, and still comes on the show quite a lot and debates yeah. with John Eastman. And he, uh, uh, I had him react to some Issues being raised by Antonin Scalia and Chief Justice Roberts about the president's decision not to defend the Defense of Marriage Act. Here's the first of Justice Scalia and then my request for Irwin to comment. It has not arisen very often in the past, because in the past, when I was at the Office of Legal Counsel, there there is an opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel which says that the attorney general will defend the laws of the United States except in two circumstances. Number one, where the basis for the alleged unconstitutionality has to do with presidential powers. When the presidential powers are involved, he's the lawyer for the president, so he can say, we think the statute's unconstitutional, I won't defend it. The second situation is where no possible rational argument could be made in defense of it. Now, neither of those situations exists here. And I'm wondering uh, if we're living in this new world where the attorney general can simply decide, uh, yeah, it's, it's unconstitutional, but it's not so unconstitutional that I'm not willing to enforce it. Uh, if we're in this new world, I, I don't want these cases like this to come before this court all the time. And I think they will come all the time if that's... If, if, if that's the uh, the new regime in the Justice Department that we're dealing with. Erwin, you must be sympathetic to part of this, at least. A president and attorney general take an oath to uphold the Constitution. The president and the attorney general always have been able to say, I believe this law is unconstitutional. I'm not going to defend it. Now, I understand Justice Scalia's frustration with a situation like this, where you have a federal law and the United States government is enforcing the federal law, but won't defend it. But I don't think there is any constitutional way to make a president defend a law that the president thinks is unconstitutional. 
Dr. Larry Arn, you are a scholar of the founding. What did you make of the Scalia question and the Chemerinsky interpretation of it? Uh, well, uh, in, in a funny way, they're both right, of course. Uh, if a president thinks that a law is unconstitutional, every officer of the federal government is obliged to obey the Constitution. Chemerinsky's right about that. But you know, at the time that Barack Obama took the oath of office to be president the first time, he was publicly of the view that this was a constitutional law. And so there's a change. And uh, uh, he says his, his opinion has evolved. And that's inconvenient, because the law is not supposed to evolve. In other words, Obama himself can't really, he is to use the legal term, stopped from, from that claim, because he's changed his own mind about that. Then Chief Justice Roberts, perhaps sensing that very argument, weighed in, and again, Irwin will comment on the Chief's question or comment. Here's cut number two. What is the test for when you think your obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed means you'll follow your view about whether it's constitutional or not, or you won't follow your view? What do you think, Erwin? Does he need a test? Do we need a test as a self-governing people for understanding when the president's going to say his oath obliges him not to defend a law? There is no test that can be formulated. The test is that it's in the Constitution. The president takes an oath to uphold the constitutional laws of the United States. If the president believes that a law is unconstitutional, the president has the power to refuse to defend it. And no court could conceivably say they're going to order the president to defend a law that the president believes is unconstitutional. Where does this take us, Dr. Larry Arn, in terms of the authority of the president, if Irwin is right and the chief doesn't get a standard with which he can work? Well, the, 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 this, this is not unprecedented, this, this situation, because conflict between the branches is sewn into the Constitution. It's, it's a feature of it, right? And, and the branches are even given shares in each other's powers, for example, the power of the courts to decide whether a given statute conforms to the Constitution when they enforce it in a case before parties, and the power of the president to plead before the court. That's a sharing of power. And your question was, where does it take us? The answer is, the people have to decide this matter. Conflict between the branches about major issues is a sign for the people to get involved, because ultimately, the Constitution, over time and through the constitutional processes, is in their hands. Chermaninsky is right. Again, uh, a court can't force a president, or the Congress can't force a president to do X and Y, except when the Constitution gives them specific power to do it. For that- example, the House of Representatives can force a president not to spend money on something by not giving him the money. But it raises the prospect of a president saying, not giving me the money is unconstitutional and I shall spend it, which is why I think I'll go to the last exchange between Scalia with Erwin Chemerinsky's response. The justice is so agitated. Cut number three. Excuse me, it's not your view, it's the president. It's it's only when the president thinks it's unconstitutional that you can decline to defend it? Or what if the attorney general thinks it's unconstitutional? No, no, of course that's... Or the solicitor general, is that enough? No, it can be either the attorney general or or the solicitor general. So when Congress enacts a statute, it cannot be defended. It, it, It has no assurance that that statute will be defended in court if the solicitor general in his view, thinks it's unconstitutional. Yes or no? Okay, Erwin, yes or no? It's the President of the United States who's responsible for the executive branch of government. 
If the president says the law is unconstitutional, we're not defending it, then no member of the executive branch can defend it. If the president says we are defending it, then the executive branch is obligated to defend it. I believe the key is the president of the United States. So, uh, Dr. Larry Oren, why is Justice Scalia so agitated? Well, he makes, a, he makes an excellent point, too. His, remember, he had two points. His first point was, if it affects the powers of the presidency, and the second was, if it's so plainly unconstitutional as not to be defensible. The reason you need some test like that is that if it happens all the time, then the laws are not predictable. But they need to be predictable because the law doesn't belong to the executive branch to enforce or the courts to hear cases in. The law belongs to the people. And one of the main leading points of the founders over and over again is the laws need to be simple, not so numerous that we can't all know what they are, and not so changeable that we can't predict what they, what they are and mean. So presidents do, in my opinion, you know, if, if there was a law that said, if I was elected president of the United States and there was a law in the books that said you've got to round up the Jews and shoot them, then I would not enforce that law. I would, I, would, I would regard it as a violation of several provisions of the Constitution. And then I wouldn't enforce it. And, and you know, Obama doubtless, doubtless thinks this is a similar case. But the point is, there can't be many things like that. It has to be very clear cases. And I repeat my initial point, Obama has proved that this is not a clear case because he has changed his own mind on it. And stood for election in the first instance on that proposition. Exactly so. Exactly so. And in the second instance, not with this, you know, a, a major feature of the campaign. So I, I, I think, A, uh, Chermaninsky is right in, in form, true. But is he right in this circumstance? If he's right in this circumstance, then whatever Barack Obama thinks on morning, on some Tuesday morning, changes his mind, the law is then very shiftable, and we don't want that. No, we don't. I'm going to come back and return to our standard Friday afternoon fair, one of the great books of the West, The History of the Peloponnesian War, with Dr. Larry Arn on the Hillsdale Dialogue. You can link to it at hughhewitt.com. 21 minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, who is the president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. And each week at this time, we engage in the Hillsdale Dialogue, where Dr. Arn or one of his colleagues helps explicate a great text of the Western canon. All of those conversations, dating way back now, uh, are all available at uh, hughforhillsdale.com. And you can link to it from hughhewitt.com or go to hillsdale.edu. And thousands of you have done that, and that's very gratifying, and I hope thousands more do, and that you begin at the beginning, and it doesn't cost you a thing. You just have to sign up and give me your email. Uh, the, we are working our way this week and for the next three weeks, as we did last week, through uh, an introduction to the history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, Dr. Arn has recommended the Strassler translation with an introduction by Victor Davis Hanson. Mine arrived yesterday, but I am still working through the Crawley uh, translation, uh, Dr. Arn. So we might be a little bit different. No, but... no, no. Crawley and Strassler are the same. Oh, terrific. Strassler has used Crawley in a edited volume where he adds lots of maps and 
footnotes and explanations I, is really great. The I know. I got, I got it, and I started paging through it last night. I said, this is terrific. No wonder VDH did this. Yeah, yeah, and Victor Hansen helped him with it, and Victor Hansen is the man. Well, he has unfortunately not taught me how to do my pronunciation, so I know how to say Corinthians, but am I yeah. saying Corsirens correctly? How do you say it? Corsirens. Corsirens, yeah, 50% chance. So this is, we're early, we're, the war has not begun. Last week we talked about how Persia invaded and the Greeks came together and repulsed it, but a long period of uneasy peace between Athens, the sea power, and Sparta, the land power, is coming to an end, and people are choosing sides. And why does this, and you discussed last week, how dialogues are used by Thucydides to illustrate things. Pick up there, because this is the first great speechifying segment of the Peloponnesian War. So Thucydides reproduces uh, long, detailed, and eloquent, and extremely revealing speeches 141 times at events where there was no written record, and most often he was not there. So he has to explain, how does he come up with this? And he basically says, I heard a lot of reports, and I wrote what it was required for them to say, given what they are and what the situation was. And think about that for a minute. Uh, what would you say if, if, if Hugh Hewitt were pleading before Justice Roberts and he was asking you and Scalia and they were asking you those intelligent questions? The questions would say what you had to say combined with what you, Hugh, are and believe, right? Yes, yes. So it's a, it's a look into the souls of the people who are talking. And that's what these speeches are. And we come to the first one, the first great one here. And it's the speech of the Corsirens and the Corinthians uh, before the Athenians. And it's worth, here's a little school of foreign policy in microcosm. We always think we're going to banish war. This will teach you that that cannot be done, because here are the facts. Corinth, a great naval power, great, second only to Athens, is located down in the bottom part of Greece, the part called the Peloponnese. That's where Sparta is. And Corinth is the great naval power located there, right on the edge, almost directly between Athens and Sparta. Corinth established a colony, Corsaira. And Corsaira is all the way around on the other side of Greece, in the Adriatic, over toward Italy. And then north of that, even farther, Corsaira, in turn, started a colony called Epidamnus. So, mother, Corinth daughter, Corsaira, granddaughter, Epidamnus. Now, who can predict these things? <coughs> Epidamnus is up there by itself. <coughs> Excuse me, it's on its, way to, on its way to Syracuse in Italy, and it's happy as a pig up there. And they've got their own ways up there, and Corsaira does too. And if you want to go boating around there and trade, there's a big trade way there, then you put into those ports, and those are kind of not allied cities on the, on the sea, and they choose not to be allied. And Corinth claims that they're abusive of the shipping that, that, that stops in there. Several Epidamnons are, sounds almost onopietic, are uh, exiled, and they make some allies, and they lay siege to Epidamnus. And Epidamnus goes, goes to, uh, to the daughter, Corsaira, and says, help me out. And Corsaira won't help them. No, you know, in Athens and Sparta, nobody knows this is going on. They're, they're <laughs> Good about point. To be the great powers at war. So Epidamnus then proceeds immediately to Grandma, to Corinth, and says, 
you help us out. And Corinth looks out there and says, ha-ha, yes, I don't like the way my daughter's been acting anyway. We have rituals and we have get-togethers, and they don't treat us with the respect due to a mother. They're getting stroppy and powerful and rebellious, and I don't like them. I'm going to side with the grandchild. And so they send some ships. There's a battle. And the battle doesn't go terribly well for Corinth, which, however, is a great power. And so Corinth gets busy, and they start hiring sailors and building ships and borrowing money and really getting ready. And Corsaira knows it's in trouble. And so they go to Corinth, and now they say, Oh, my goodness, Mom, let's submit this to arbitration or ask the oracle at Delphi what's right here, and we will agree in advance to do whatever it is. And the Corinthians say, too late. So now the Corsairans have got to have somewhere to go. So off they go to Athens. So now the big boys are getting involved. And, and the, you know, the Spartans are involved because the Corinthians near the Spartans, you know, connected to them by land. And that means... A bad thing. So, so grandma and daughter are going to fall to blows over the granddaughter and who is going to run the granddaughter's life. But right. before we go to and they go to Athens to make an appeal. But you just mentioned something in passing. We have two minutes of the break. They Let's appeal to the Oracle at Delphi. They really did do that, Dr. Arn. I want you right. to, to emphasize. Why would any rational people do things like that? They're very pious. And uh, the Greeks are very pious, especially the Spartans. But... To disobey, to flaunt the gods, and, and, you know, at Delphi there's an establishment, a priestly, priestessly establishment, and you can go there and ask them a question and you'll get an answer. The answers are famously uh, equivocal or, or mysterious, but then you can parse it out and try to figure out what they said and do what they said, and, and so that's, a, that's the way they run their business. And, and, and did they themselves believe that those were the gods speaking through the priest, or do they believe that this is a good intermediary mediating institution that is useful for the resolution of conflict? Well, you're asking us to look into the hearts of men, but of course some did, and some believed the one thing and some believed the other, and there's evidence that the Greeks at this stage are not as pious as they have been in the past. When we come back from break, Corinth and Corsairus send their ambassadors to the Athenian court. My first question for Dr. Arne will be, why to Athens and not to Sparta? Why did they engage with the Athenians? And by the way, why do they get to decide and why do they both show up and why didn't Corinth throw down at that point? Don't go anywhere except over to the Hillsdale Dialogues. If you missed last week's setup for this, you should be listening to that first. Every one of these conversations I've had with Dr. Arne, available for free at the Hillsdale Dialogues, which is linked at HughHewitt.com or Hugh for Hillsdale, or you can find it at Hillsdale.edu. And uh, judging from the reaction, you're loving them. Good. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogues continue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Visit Hillsdale.edu for everything you need to know about Hillsdale. If you want the dialogues, they're always linked at HughHewitt.com. They go back many weeks now. They're completely free. You just have to sign up. Dr. Arn, we're talking, as, uh, as we did before the break, about Corinth and Corsaira going to the Athenians to ask for their help. Why did they go to Athens as opposed to Sparta? Well, the reason for that is you're going to go to one of those places, and the Corinthians think they have the upper hand, 
And they're the ones who are closer to Sparta. They're closer geographically. And, and it's, just, it's just a fact. If you live on the land and you're a marchable distance from Sparta, Sparta can tell you what to do. There's only one exception to that, and that's Athens, and that's because of a certain wall that the Athenians built. But, but they, so, so the Corinthians don't have cause for complaint right now. They're winning. The Corsairans are the ones who need a friend. And so they go to the only place that's big enough to be a friend. And it's, it's worth saying here to start, because one of the things that goes on in these speeches is there's lots of talk of the importance of naval power. In fact, that's terribly important throughout this war. The, the decisive battle that decided the war was a naval battle. And oddly enough, Athens, the great naval power, managed not to win it. Hmm. And, and, uh, but but uh, uh, Athens is the greatest na- naval power in history. And think of the character of naval power. You just get in the boat and go. And you can go anywhere the water can go. You can go very far. Whereas a land power, you got to walk. And so the naval powers have a kinship, and distance doesn't matter as much to them. And the naval powers in Greek in order are Athens, Corinth, and Corsaira. And so two of those are at war with each other, and if one of them allies with Athens... Athens becomes, by a bigger margin, the great naval power, if both of them, because maybe of a conquest of Corsaira from Corinth, allies with Sparta, then all of a sudden Sparta is now not just the overwhelmingly dominant land power, but a great naval power, too. So an assembly, quoting, was convoked, and the rival advocates appeared before the Athenians. Now, Dr. Arne, was this preordained, in your view, how it would turn out, before the speeches were ever given? I think that uh, you sent me a very able outline, and I want to add one thing to it next week. I think it was you talk about 170, where uh, the Corinthians are before the Spartans, and the Athenians are before the Spartans, because that is extremely revealing, too. Okay. But both of them... And there's a wonderful characterization of the difference between the two countries, from the Corinthians to the Spartans, with the Athenians listening. And, uh, and in both cases, the weight of the argument seems to me, at, at the very most, mixed. They both make some really great cases, right, and factual cases about what's going on. But Athens decides a way that leads toward war and conflict with Sparta quicker and then later you'll see that Sparta decides in a way that leads with conflict and war toward Athens quicker. And I think that's because the reasons existed already. Okay. Okay. So two minutes of the break. Open up how the Corsairans go about stating their case. Well, it's, it's, it's just wonderful. You know, if, <laughs> if, if only people would talk this plainly in the press. You know, <laughs> yes. Statesmen. yes. Oh, Athenians, they say. Yes, it's true that we've been isolated from you and haven't done a darn thing for you. (laughs) And so we appear inconsistent, and we appear inexpedient. Why would you get yourself messing around in our affairs when there's nothing but complication coming from it? That's their opening. (laughs) It's candid. Help us. Yeah, help us. (laughs) And that's exactly what the Athenians have got to be thinking, because everybody's worried to death about war, and this thing started 
heckened on all the way around up the other side of Greece, forever and a day away, against an obscure granddaughter and their exiles and some barbarians and locals. And early on, Dr. Arn, the, the Corsairans say, let the conduct of the Corinthians toward us, who are their, their children, be a warning to you not to be misled by their deceit, nor to yield to their direct requests. Concessions to adversaries only end in self-reproach, and more strictly they are, they avoided, the greater will be the chance of security. So he's attacking their credibility at the start, too. It's a throwdown. That's it. That's it. And, you know, the way they've treated us, do you want to be treated that way? And, there, and, you know, we've been off there, it's true, by ourselves, doing nothing. And, and, but, but, but now but. we've got a problem, and we're coming to ask for help. And we need help because they're big and strong and mean. We'll be right back to tell you how this turns out with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. The Hillsdale Dialogues are linked at HughHewitt.com. 44 minutes after the American Hugh Hewitt as we conclude this Friday with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, in the second in our series of conversations about the history of the Peloponnesian War. Early in the book, the first dialogue between embassies occurs before the Athenians, the Corsairans, and the Corinthians. There's eight pages of this, Dr. Arn. I'm going to give the floor to you for eight minutes to explain why this first dialogue, this really first contending debate in Western civilization ought actually to be read by every college student. First introduction, think of the Middle East today. A bunch of powers, many of them Islamic, one of them Jewish, uh, different tribes and sects, I guess sects is the word, of Islamic powers. Power politics, very common. Assassination, not uncommon. Despotism, very common. What are the conversations like? And they probably aren't as candid as these because these are rendered by a great mind, Thucydides. But underneath what they're saying is the same mixture of principle and interest that, that, that runs through all of these conversations. If you read, I think, every conversation in Thucydides, but certainly the famous ones, there's always an appeal to the interest of the person you're trying to persuade and then there's always an appeal to principle. And it'll jangle to the modern ear, but it ought not, that very often the principle is the stronger gets his way. And we're stronger. That happens a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and so we have to talk about that. We'll talk about that when we do, to one, do 170 next week, because it's a really great place for it. But, but what happens in the dialogue is the Corsairans then say, Look at the principle involved. You got to treat your children pretty well, don't you? And we didn't get founded by these people. You know, we moved out here and we've done all this and we started this place, and we're not to be abused by our abused by our mother, and that's wrong. And so you should stand up against that principle. Now it's true, they say, that you have a treaty with both Corinth and with Sparta, all three of your signatories to a wider treaty. We are not signatories to that. But that treaty permits you, however, to make an alliance with anybody you want to who is currently a neutral, and that's what we are. So you won't do them any harm. Now, that, that argument by Corsaira is undercut by the next argument, which is, however, look at the facts. <laughs> we are a really great naval power, and so are you. And if we join up with you... Wow, aren't we something? <laughs> and if you do it at this moment of our need, 
when you don't have any obligation to do it, Lord, will we not be really grateful? Gosh, we're going to be so happy. And owe you so much, and we got this Navy to pay it back with. Whereas, if you leave us to our own devices, Corinth might conquer us, get our Navy, and join up with Sparta. And you know, they warn, that war is upon you, and that's bad. And so, so that's their speech. And, and the speech is, if you imagine yourself with the power to decide a thing like this, which neighbor you're going to join, what are you going to do in a business situation, and, and people are telling you, right is on my side, and your interest is on my side. And if you decide my way, you'll get stronger and better. And if you decide your, the other way, you're going to get hurt. You'd say to yourself, good speech, good arguments. Very good. Very mighty dang good. Well done, you know. <laughs> and, and you want to go, right? And then the thing is, all the time that they're talking like this, and, and these people by now have been killing each other already, the Corsairans and the Corinthians. There's a body count, a significant one. And, and, so, at the, and, and they've been quarreling for a long time and, you know, undercutting each other at the rituals and stuff. Um, then the, but the Corinthians are sitting there, listening, and then they get their chance to talk. And what they say is, yeah, 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 they've been very separate. And that's not because, as they say, they wanted to be isolated from the wrongs that other people do. In fact, they're kind of a stationary pirate state, because they're located up there in a place where ships are always having to put in and they steal their stuff, and they tax them, and they behave abominably. And, by the way, you, Athens, are a great imperial power with lots of colonies. Are you going to let your colonies treat you the way these guys have been treating us? Really? Because they're just behaving terribly. And all we did was go up there and try to help the grandchildren, the Epidamnians, who, who we had you know, second removed, founded, and they were in dire straits, and, and the Corsairans had refused to help them out. All we did was go help them. And, and now the Corsairans are upset with us. A situation that they had ignored, we are trying to fix. You would never put up with that. Right is on our side. So that's the principled argument. And, and sure enough, we are a great naval power. And then we turn to the interest argument. And the interest argument is, do you really want us joining up with the Spartans? Yep. Because, yeah, you have the right <coughs> excuse me, to make a treaty with a neutral, if you please, but not in a case where the purpose of the treaty is to harm the interest of others in the treaty. And so you will, in effect, be declaring hostility to people who are very strong, and they might be coming. And you don't want to alienate us, because we, too, are a great naval power. And guess who we might be allied with? And then you'll be in a world of hurt. Uh, Dr. Arn, next week, uh, you, you mentioned 170. That's book one, the 70th paragraph. We're going to talk about when Sparta has its assembly. But as you conclude reading these dialogues, do you think that there was any doubt in the Athenians' mind, given, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, war was coming, which way they would go? Yeah, and they decide pretty quick that they're, but they do a middling thing, because 
this speech, by the way, the later speech, some of the, the best of the later speeches are, are looking into the different kinds of human souls, the different ways that human beings live and what they value. This one is really just a, a little school in how foreign affairs works. Because the questions are always tangled, and, and, the, and wars start from things that, that the big powers hardly know about. And, and so it's like that, right? But what the Athenians do is they join Corsaira for a defensive-only alliance, and they send a bunch of ships out there and says, if you attack Corsaira, we will we will attack you. And the results but we will of that not help Corsaira attack you. The results of that alliance next week when we continue the Hillsdale dialogue. Doctor Arn, Happy Easter! I'll be right back. America, conclude this week's show.